Hello and welcome to Night at When Will It End, the podcast where after hours, when the sun is set, these two jackoffs come to life and we talk about the movies and let me tell you how we talk about them in chronological order of their release so that it makes sense as we track the expansion of the universe of the franchise. And of course, we are two movies deep into our Night at the Museum series. Look, we got so much mail from listeners. You gotta do... When are you going to do night? It was endless. This is Charles, by the way. When are you going to go to the museum? It was crazy. Like, this is, we've heard a lot from our listeners. They email us constantly, send us Facebook messages constantly. Just, it's a barrage. It's, we actually had to hire an intern to deal with it. And he was sending me notes every day. I mean, like, they will not shut about night at the museum. There were death threats. I was, I, my family, I moved my wife and cat into witness protection. Get into the fucking museum. They were confused. I was like, we've got to go to the Smithsonian. And they were like... Get into the fucking museum. Into the massive basement that sits beneath Washington, D.C., the vault beneath the mall that we're all acutely aware of. Charles, we're talking today about Night at the Museum, colon, Battle of the Smithsonian. (laughs) And look, look, let let me just say this. When you talk about upping the ante on a series... How do you do it? New York City, right? It's sort of a famously a second-class place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. When you think about cities on the East Coast and the excitement that accompanies them, you're like, New York City, yawn. Yeah, boring. Where, where are we? Tacoma? I don't even know what that is, but that makes it's sense. A, it's a city in Washington State. The, the way you ratchet up the excitement in a series is to get out of boring old New York City yeah. and truck on down Route 95, you get in your... You get in your airplane, you get in your 18-wheeler, Yep. you get in your squirrel, yep. you head on down south to a little city I like to call Washington, D.C., the, the city that never sleeps. Wait, isn't that New York? Ah, who's to say? Who's to no, say? No, it can't be New baby, York. New York is a podunk little piece of shit. New York's too sleepy. No one likes it. Backwaters, town, not much of a place. But yes, wow. It, I, I imagine when kids out there realize that, you know... We were no longer in the boring old Natural History Museum, but rather we were going to Washington, D.C. They were like, fuck me up. I'm about to – I'm going to rip a bowl before this one. I bet like in the line outside the ticket booth in 2009, people were like passing out, doing ketamine, fucking each other, getting stabbed. I bet it was like a full-on lot scene outside of the, the queue for opening night of Night at the Museum, colon, Battle of the Smithsonian. I mean are you – because of the Smithsonian, because we're in D.C. now, like, is it just the, the the hype of being in a big, I mean, Josh, they say it twice, maybe more in the movie. This is the biggest museum in the world. It's the biggest museum in the world and the coolest city in the world. I think it's like a multiplying effect. We're like, what's cooler than being in Washington, D.C.? Simple, being at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. It's just math. I, I love that part of this movie is like the Natural History Museum in New York City is like, We've been using wax figures and tiny miniatures for decades. How about we up the fucking ante and make this something that wasn't built in the 80s? And uh, our success story, Larry, who's now a full-blown infomercial god, he's like, I I like the little wax figure. I like the the little baby man and the horse. Let's go to the... I want us to go finish your thought. Well, I, I just like that the natural progression is not only go to the largest museum in the world, but also the museum in the world that still looks like the 80s. Like, I've been to the Smithsonian 
in the last few years and it looks i mean this was shot after i was there and it's like still looks like a shitty fucking place we talked about this last episode museums suck and this that's because they have old shit that they refuse to get new shit well we'll get into why exactly this movie is a toxically problematic nightmare for so many reasons but i want to step back and say from a macro vision Two observations. The first is this series of anyone we've done so far is the wildest yet for the sheer number of questions raised by each (laughs) each successive installment raised more and more questions about the world of the film that are not addressed in any way. And it is perplexing. Like massive wild shit happens constantly in this world with absolutely no context or explanation that that left me like – swirling with questions of which I wrote down many of them. So look forward to that. Yeah. I mean, my biggest one is just like, they seem, it seems to be like the fairy tale, like kids idea that after nine o'clock, everything just ceases to exist. Well, like has any, I mean, I know that maybe these are New York filmmakers where nothing really does happen after 10 PM. I've been told I've never bothered to go there. They call it the sleepy city on the river. Yeah. So it would make sense that, you know, a daring escape across the largest fucking museum in the world, which takes place over the entire mall. They call it the mall, right? Because there's all these little shops and... In D.C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, there's... You got Spencer's Gifts. You got Hot Topic. Right. Amelia Earhart is flying the Wrights Brothers plane across all these great modern American mall stores, and nothing's happening because it's after 10 o'clock. And it's like... What really? I was thinking is, what if the Vietnam vets at the memorial came to life and started to massacre nearby villages in the like across the Potomac? Like, there's a shot of like metal soldiers, platoon style, coming out over like fucking Annapolis and just like raising it to the ground. I, I think this did open up too much. This is like what we've talked about with the Terminator and why the the first Terminator is so good because it's fucking contained. It's about time travel, which makes no sense if you think about it, but because it was contained in a very small, tight ninety. You don't have to worry about it. And then Terminator 2 opens it up so much. So you're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. What about this? And now we have statues coming to life. We got pictures coming to life. We got paintings coming to life. We got all this shit where there's apparently micro universes inside every goddamn piece of art ever made. So, okay. So here's, again, so many massive, horrible questions that drove me crazy watching this. Let's start with the one you just touched on. In this movie, Lincoln comes to life in the Lincoln Memorial. Why is the marble that constitutes him as a statue conscious, but the building that surrounds him of the same material yes. connected to him is not conscious? Well, Josh, so I- what, what's the fine print on the limitless power of the tablet, which again is alluded to in this as being this expansive world controlling entity that is given just zero direction? I, I think I understand I that why one. Why isn't the whole memorial talking? I'll explain why isn't, it to you. Why can't we talk? Okay, fine. Because Aachen Mafa's... Uh, Aachen Ra. Aachen Ra? Just say the great Hank Azaria, whose single goal in life is to play as many non-white races as possible before he dies. Um, God no. bless him. God bless Hank Azaria. A very talented, funny man who is not funny in this terrible movie. He just grew up in an era where you could just... It was not... A, it wasn't a bad idea to put on accents of Indian and Egyptian. Like, it didn't matter in the 80s if you talked like somebody else. This movie was made in 2009. Also, I don't understand how in in the first movie, they at least made the effort of getting Rami Malek to to play an Egyptian person. And in this movie, they're like, fuck it. 
Hank. Get Hank. He's known for this shit. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing is we, we do know that at night, we think it's history comes alive, but I think this one sort of makes it art comes alive. This is all about art. So, Josh, we finally, this is the test. You have, you have a three-year-old that can paint with its hands and face, and you're like, oh, I, I can make art. You bring this tablet into the room. If that shit doesn't come alive, it's not art. This is like the art test. So so, so you're saying that the, the untapped resource that this movie does not explore enough with the tablet is to objectively judge whether or not something is artistic. Right. Definitively. Everything. Okay. So that's why the building, even though it's as old as the statue, doesn't come alive because it's stupid. It's not doesn't make you feel anything. It's not art. And, you know... Someone who says, oh, I disagree, it makes me feel a certain way because of the straight lines and the whatever. You're like, no, Achenra's tablet proves that... So strictly things that are deliberately meant to reflect, no matter how abstractly or obtusely, and I'm thinking of the Jeff Koons uh, aluminum blow-up uh, toy dog thing sure. that squeaks around. Yeah. If, if it even vaguely attempts to replicate something sentient, then specifically that exact inanimate object is given the magical power to have consciousness well, i mean i wouldn't even say that i'd say that uh what's his name's urinal uh that would just be just like fucking piss soaked but Marcel Duchamp's urinal yeah okay, Duchamp's like urinal. A, a, a gleeful piss guzzling yeah. deliberately avant-garde urinal so it doesn't need to like be look human or look like a, a shape of an animal or a human to come to life it needs to evoke something that is artistic Okay, yeah. So maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just like the piss urinal. And maybe if I came in there with after sundown, Hold on, is that where I don't th- is that where Duchamp's infamous urinal is? I don't think it's. No, at- I'm sure it's in France. The French love that shit. They love piss. They but love- I'm sorry. So you just specifically chose as an example something not remotely related to the purview of this museum. No, I'm just saying you could bring Achenra's tablet anywhere oh, you oh, wanted. Okay, and okay, like, okay, okay. It doesn't need to be a balloon animal. Like, oh, because that looks like something that could scamper. It will come to life. It just means if this makes you, as a human being, feel something artist like that. Art is supposed to, you know, art. Art makes you feel good. Art makes you feel. Me and sad. art is like this. I'm I'm doing the finger thing where we're entwined. Right. Okay. So you, you raised a really good point a moment ago in your inane ramblings. That's great. In in the Museum of Natural History, we are led to believe that specifically that community of weird living mannequins come to life. Because for 50 years, the tablet has been specifically in that building. Now. Correct. There is only one of these tablets in existence. So presumably, no other museum in the world would have a similar equitable experience of having everything come to life at night. Because that's the whole thing about the singular power of the tablet, right? Yeah. Okay, so. I don't understand. Yeah, go. It it makes no sense. Let me finish this chain. If that is true, why, how would any of these Things in the Smithsonian know about any like they've never been sentient it before this one moment and yet go spring to life as though they've been going to life every night for a thousand years. They know where everything is. They know all these relationships. They know all this stuff. How? They've never been alive before tonight because the tablet's just gotten there for the yes. first time. That was the thing. They had the reason why uh, Aachen, I We need to know that is it, it's Achenra. Just call him Hank. No, just no, I'm Hank talking about the other one, the younger brother. Okay, you just call him Rami. Okay. That's Rami. Rami this and Hank. Hank. So the reason why Rami in the first one, they were actually like, you know, until the Hun could only speak in the bullshit Hun language because he didn't bother to learn anything else because he ha- had only had the tablet for 
a little bit of time. But Rami, who for 50 years has been sort of hopping around with the tablet because it's his tablet, he's had the opportunity to come to to life every night, learn different languages, meet new friends, have a fucking ball. But you're right. Hank, this is his first night that he's been alive. And he comes in speaking, do you speak French? Do you speak Egyptian? Do you speak right? How how would how would that Egyptian king have known French? That's insane. Or you have Ivan the Terrible, who, by the way, if you're if you're gonna fucking cast Christopher Guest, what the fuck? <laughs> they cast one of like one of the funniest people in the world to do nothing. He gets like one little bit about how his real name is Ivan the Awesome, and that's like the he's not he doesn't even have jokes. No, it's really, the, it's it's perverse. This is one of the big problems with the movie. I mean, there's lots of problems with this movie, but one of them is that they repeat the same no touching bit in the same movie twice, and it was sort of funny the first time. But that's like the whole style of humor from these two losers is like you could tell they packed this movie with Apatow like people at the time that were very big. And Apatow knows how to have like a realish conversation that's a little bit stylized, but it's about like the way humans sort of hem and haw while they're talking to each other, not quite talk about what they want to. And like the his comedy is about the way we communicate. And this is like the the like shitty version of an Apatow movie. Well, the ultimate version of that is that we get I was pretty excited to see that Jonah Hill was in this because yeah. I think Jonah Hill is gen- generally a ray of light whenever he appears. And the fact that he gets one scene to do a bit with Ben and like I'm not complaining. Like it was that. one of the rare scenes in the movie where I was like, oh, this is like, you know, this funny camaraderie they earn, this respect that they have, like the, the classic Jonah Hill thing of going from hot to cold and back and forth. Like all that worked in this little exchange. Mm-hmm. And then he's gone. Then yeah. he's gone from the movie. And it's like it was I was like that was working. Very little works in this movie. I, I felt the same way. Nothing was working, and then Jonah Hill shows up, and I was like, "Oh, this is actually great." I'm really like I sort of I laughed a couple of times. They felt it sort of felt like Steve Coogan and Owen Wilson did in the first movie, and he, that's completely gone at this point. Uh, but like that was a moment where I was like, "Oh, they they have this guard ship together," and he's like, "Well, well then also we're talking about, we're we're talking about a series or a franchise." Passing the baton to Jonah Hill is a brilliant move. Like, why would you waste that? Yeah, he could have been his fucking sidekick the whole movie. Like, what the fuck? Though, passing the baton, you said that. I was noticing some pretty interesting... I know I brought up Buffy last episode and how they destroyed the Buffy bot in a similar way that they were going to destroy uh, Stiller by drawing and quartering him. And this, this got me thinking about Buffy, I don't know if you want to go down this alley. I'm sure you don't, but I'm probably going to do it anyway. So unless you put up well, a Well, you've big done fight. a considerable lead up to it. So I feel like at this point, were I to attempt to pump the brakes, it would be in vain. So why don't you deliver on your Buffy-related uh, rant, and we'll go from there. Okay, and if you don't watch Buffy, you don't like Buffy, you don't really want to hear about Buffy, then... Tough titties. That's the show. Just, just fuck you. Or you can skip five minutes. No, how about fuck you? No, no, no. No, no, don't skip around. Sit the fuck down. This is the show. You downloaded it. You're listening to our Night at the Museum 2 coverage. So guess what? You can also stand a little bit of Buffy. That show kicks ass. Charles, please. So here's my first thing, which doesn't really relate to the thing you just mentioned, but it's sort of an overarching. I think that Buffy and the Night Guard are very similar in that they spend all day doing a reel, like going to school, working a job. Yet they still find time every night to patrol all fucking night, hang out with friends, kill, kill shit. Like, and then they have to, they, they just do this nonstop. They're awake all the time. 
that's you're looking at this in a very Charles way, but I would say you're touching on a very real thing, which is that you know the alienation Buffy experiences constantly living this life beyond belief consumed by violence and loss and pain and it's like that becomes a huge part of that exploration of that character is the yeah. fact that she she you know at one point um, how far into, into season six are you? we just started we're on episode four okay so not too far but this sort of starts come up like when she goes and goes back and meets the original slayer again and season five near the end of season five she's like how do i be a, a weapon of evil and still maintain a life of good right so that series i'm not going to reveal anything it really digs into this idea of like what does it mean to spend most of your life in this very bizarre extreme world that no one else understands or acknowledges and and this movie like all of larry's undertakings and this leads me to my other big point that I, it ties into what you just said about buffy in, in a way that brings it all back around and this is why this show is so good <laughs> i'm this so glad you didn't skip we're firing we're firing if you skipped <laughs> four or five minutes you missed it fuck you you, fuck, you missed and it. yes okay. fuck you the big comparison point for this movie, for other work we've done on this benighted podcast, is that Larry is doing a Fast and Furious, where in the first movie, he's a bumbling, unemployable, divorced dad who stumbles into a job he doesn't want to do and eventually, through his good spirit or whatever, becomes a <laughs> beloved fixture at the museum. I think it was the, in this movie, the magic of history, but yes, go ahead. In this movie, he's... A genius inventor CEO who breaks into the Smithsonian, eventually fights an Egyptian god in hand-to-hand combat. And it's like the the escalation – we talk often, we talked a lot during the Fast and the Furious series, how they're literally robbing like VCRs in the first one. And then the fifth (laughs) one, they, you know, drag a bank vault through Rio. So the, the escalation from that – the first movie in this series to the second movie is pretty fucking extreme. Like Larry literally can't be employed in the first movie. His ex-wife is worried about him. Yeah. And now he's like, I'll take a night off from being a CEO going to interview with Walmart for a new product to break into the Smithsonian and have a heist of an ancient Egyptian magical tap. Like come on. That's crazy. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking the same thing. It's like – like he had all these ideas and that was part of the fun was that he kept, he he was bad he was bad at life because he wanted to do stuff that was unimportant and the first movie as sort of dumb as it was was like the magic of history is cool but also the magic of friendship like i really liked that there was no like romance trying to tuck in there he meets the dol- what the dolcent is that what it's called when you like docent 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 yeah he meets a docent and you're like oh she's she's cool and and beautiful and this is a nine like basically a late 90s idea so of course they're gonna not fuck but fall in love or whatever and they don't and i was like oh this is great this is where he just learns that he likes history a lot and the second one just like totally throws that away and now he's the god of flashlights and well no also okay so the the thing is like if the first part of this movie with George Foreman and the infomercial felt so surreal. I was almost like, okay, if the bit is he like wakes up from napping at a job, another job, he or like the the idea of he only succeeded from the last movie, and this is the moving of the goalposts that drove me crazy. In the first movie, everyone's like, Jesus, Larry, get a fucking job, like yeah. think about your kids, you fucking delinquent. And this movie, he's a successful entrepreneur who is only watching his success continue unimpeded to shoot upwards and his son's like daddy's working again tonight and it's like 
pick a side. He doesn't right. like he, when he doesn't have a job. It's a big problem. Then he gets a job where that's like self motivated, the capitalist dream of running his own business, and people still give him shit. I know. And then like, let's get. I wanted to get to this because this drove me absolutely crazy. We need to spend a lot of time talking about Amelia Earhart because. Oh, boy. So before oh we get there, boy. there was a nice little segue out of that to bring it back to Buffy. And then I hope we can catapult like a like a, a star or whatever. They shoot to the moon where you like use the planet's orbit to go somewhere else. You slingshot. You, yeah. you slingshot. So I'm going to yeah. quickly go back to Buffy so that we can slingshot, I hope, outside of Buffy back to Amelia Earhart. Because what – as you were, we were talking about Jonah Hill, I was thinking a lot in season six. So the end of season five of Buffy, she dies. And normally, she's died once before, maybe twice, twice. A new Slayer emerges because that's how the Slayer works. When the Slayer dies, a new Slayer is born. And sort of the fun of season two or three, whatever, was that there's now two Slayers running around. Uh, yeah, the uh, completely unparalleled Eliza Dushku is Faith. She's just a selfie. By the way, she, um, Eliza Dushku is from Worcester, which makes it even more pathetic. Yeah, she really fucking like she's some from Worcester trying to pretend to be a Southie, which is fucking humiliating. Yeah, Ugh. <laughs> that um, is a real Eastern Mass faux pas. And while I I like that they're not trying to now have three Slayers, it is a little bit weird to try to. Fi- I don't. They haven't explained it yet. Maybe there is a third Slayer out there. They're just not talking about. I'm only on season episode three or four. What would have been very cool is that what if Jonah Hill, like he's been gone for years from the the Natural History Museum. There must have been a new guard. Like, we needed a second Slayer, so then this, the number two movie, the sequel, could have had two guards. How cool is that? Movie number two, two night guards that are now, like, maybe coming at odds. They really could have dealt with friendship where they, like, learn to be buddies, even though they're standoffish at first. I don't know. But I thought that would have been a very cool way to, like, get us into this idea that the guardship never ends. There's a series of guards. Maybe this could have been like the Knightsmen or whatever, where there's like a secret underground guard. So, so what you're hitting on is the is the aching lack of stakes in this movie because it's so fucking bizarre and inexplicable. Like, yes, if there was some kind of again to 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 beat this into the ground, some kind of passing of a baton thing, it would sort of make sense. In this movie, the woefully unsuccessful Natural History Museum of New York, the most beloved fucking museum in America, they're packing away all that boring old dusty stuff for a shitty hologram machine or yeah. something, which by the way, never mentioned again. And for reason that then they go to DC and the tablet, it's terrible. And then he just brings them all back. And then the next scene is, and things are now better than ever. And it's like, what the fuck? There's the, 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 the arc of this movie is bizarre. So they shoehorn this horrible plot line where Amelia Earhart, played by the wonderful Amy Adams, who can do no wrong. And I really enjoyed her in this. She, at one point, and this is how lazy this entire thread is for Larry. Um, she, she accuses him of losing his moxie. At one point, we're talking about a man who is a self-made millionaire who is in the process of performing an elaborate heist at the largest museum in the world with inanimate objects. And somehow out of that, they pry the idea that he's lost his will for fun as he runs around the Smithsonian fighting Egyptian gods and hanging out with cowboys. And she's like, wow, you've... Really lost that glimmer in your eye. And it's like, what the fuck is this? His life is fine. Can't we have a story where it's not like he just had to go back to being a guard again? Like, it's so lazy. It makes no sense. Like, the lack of a, of a coherent story, it was so frustrating. Yeah. No, I, I and great slingshot, by the way. I really appreciated that. But I, I this movie, like, it was watchable, but it kept undermining itself. 
Like there were, there's no stakes going on. There's no, dude, what the fuck happened to Owen Wilson and Steve Coogan? They're just like right from the get go. His Owen Wilson is doing the most bizarre cowboy accent. And Steve Coogan suddenly like amped up his Roman gladiator accent. I was like, it was nice just that they were Steve Coogan and Owen Wilson. I like those two men. I don't want them to be cowboys or, or Roman gladiators. Well, we're talking about the franchise effect because, again, in the first movie, Owen Wilson is uncredited. He was supposed to be a cameo. And then he tested so well, they brought him back to do a lot more. So in this, now he's like, okay, I'm Jedediah. I'm Jedediah. I'm Jedediah. I'm I'm Jed, and I'm, I've got this whole thing now, and I'm and, and he really sort of leans into it, and it, it does take away some of the spontaneity and and the, the 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 incongruously relaxed nature of their interactions, which made it so funny in the first movie. Yeah, so, I love the first one where they're like the scene where they're like, "You don't want to be like the Mayans, do you?" I locked them up, and he's like, "Just like oh, it would be like Owen Wilson, be like, no, that's not fun. I don't want to be locked up like the Mayans." And it's just like there's all that magic is gone. He's just like a fucking little cowboy. Anyone could have played him. And then with with Coogan. I love Steve Coogan, someone who generally can do no wrong. Just kind of muted in this movie. Doesn't really pop. I I, the, I think the bit with the squirrel was kind of cute, but didn't really manifest into much. Like the reveal of him riding the squirrel, I guess, was fine. But it felt like a missed opportunity. I, I wanted to get into the, the uh, truly nauseating liberal subplot of this movie. As two cranky leftists, I think we can bitch about this. This movie came out in 2009. And includes lots of really, really fucking shitty political observations that made me livid. Namely, Octavius is like, I shall go to the White House for a great man doth rule this land at, at one point. And you're like, Octavius is a Obama stan? <laughs> like, what the, what the fuck? He would like, hate, in most ways, he would hate Obama. Yeah, he was an emperor. And though, like... yeah. I don't know. I guess the lazy right wing version is that like Obama, he was a friggin' Roman. It's like, well, one, that's fucking stupid. And two, just unnecessary. Like like having weird cheerleading from a Roman about Obama is just weird. It makes no sense. I got I just like immediately threw it away. Like it was so bad. I was like, all right, whatever. I sort of even forgot that he went to the White House. Right. Okay. Then later in the movie, Abe Lincoln is like Yes, in 2009, things sure are fucking on fleek. This is rad. I declare 2009 to be the dopest year yet, basically. And it's like, dude, the fucking wealth disparity, racist cops, like the, 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 the myriad array of nightmarish problems this country has been, you know, meddling in other, in other cultures, military, intractable military conflicts, private prisons, you know, factory farming. But like in 2009, dumbass Abe Lincoln's like, yes, this shit is baller. And I do not lie. Jesus Christ. I like that that was like, he was like, a, they do not know where to stand on like what it means to be an art, like an artifact. Like in the first one, they sort of grappled with that where it's like, well, they also fucked up with Sacagawea where it's like, she's somehow the original Sacagawea, but Robin Williams is just like a wax dude on a horse. And it's the same thing here. It's like Abe Lincoln becomes, because of his dumb, like honest Abe, he actually becomes a tool for knowing what a lie is. And he's like, they say it over and over again for whether he's got a hot new girlfriend or how cool the world is. Honest Abe just knows it all. And and you touched on something else here, which is everyone in this movie is horny, which I found bad. Who's... I didn't pick up on the hornies. I picked up just on Amelia's horniness. Well, Amelia's horny for Ben Stiller, which is, as a Jew, I like the idea of more movies implying that 
someone as like uh, devastatingly attractive as Ben Stiller uh, would have, you know, an an Amy Adams type uh, jumping on him. But I found that weird. But everyone interrogates their relationship throughout the movie. There's so much pressure on them to have a sexual or romantic component to their partnership. Yeah. Where like I didn't need it at all. And it felt even more weird to have both Napoleon, Abe Lincoln and a succession of other formerly inanimate objects being like, so you guys fucking or what? You get it wet yet, bro? She drives stick or what? Also, so did you notice that the director of the film played the person that you think is um, Ben Stiller in the opening scene when he's like, it's the lights have gone out. You're trying to find a flashlight. How do you do it? And then like a guy that stumbles and like hits the, the night desk while he's walking around. That was the great Sean Levy. Yeah. And here's what I think. I think that he is probably the same height as Ben Stiller who is probably the same height as Napoleon. There were so many short jokes. There were so many things like desperately trying to not be short. I do think that he has a thing. Levy has a thing about being short and he has secretly used the the Night at the Museum franchise to try to alleviate some of this emotional pressure of being a short man. Okay, I didn't really pick up on that, but that's uh, interesting enough, I suppose. I mean, you got the horniness vibe. I got the short vibe. Like, Napoleon... Basically, his whole joke is that he's short, but that's like the perennial Napoleon joke, the Napoleon complex. That's like a that's a reference right, that's to I'm a saying. longstanding. He, he could have chosen anyone. Napoleon, honestly, he's. I mean, is he that bad of a guy compared well, to every other okay. like European uh, leader from that century? There's a million, a million historical things with this movie. And look, I understand before anyone like rolls their eyes, it's a it's a kids movie. It's idiotic by design, whatever. But. This whole culture of history is just fun, and isn't it fun to talk about history stuff when the history that's actually being expressed is completely bizarre, made-up bullshit is just bad. It's not good. Um, and and one of the most obvious things is that – and Ivan the Terrible touches on this, which is a great thing to have said in my life. Um, these people would not have been perceived as villainous in their lives. So this idea of like putting together the ultimate cabal of evil, Ivan the Terrible, Napoleon – Al Capone and a made-up Egyptian guy like that. It, that that's psychotic. That, that also is the same movie that not only continues to rehabilitate the reputation of avid racist Teddy Roosevelt, but then brings in General George Custer, who, while yes, fought for the Union, defeated Jeb Stewart's charge at Gettysburg. Gettysburg. I'm not holding that against him. It's good that he fought against the Confederate Army. They were shitheads, and I'm happy they died. But this movie is about even with the delightful Bill Hader, who again is somehow misused despite being perfect in most other roles. Yeah, General George Custer died in a war against Native Americans, trying for to eradicate. Yeah, right. So this idea that George Custer was sort of like a, you know, oh, what a wacky character that guy was. He was in the middle of like a really objectively historically horrible military campaign of oppression against people who objectively were in the right uh, against American imperialism. The scene where he's like hiding and you're like, they just make him out to be a coward. They don't talk about how atrocious he was. They're just like, oh, he was a fake leader. Well, here's the thing. His, his legacy, you know, a lot of historical discussion around Custer focuses on whether or not his his death was in vain or stupid or brilliant or if he was failed or if he like but my point is who gives a fuck he was a cog in, a, in, in imp- yeah. like an imperial racist colonial wheel that did horrible things to people so who gives a I know, fuck I, read, I was reading a little bit about him after while well, like while watching it and afterwards and it's like 
so much controversy about this guy. I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to get into the juice of how much of a shithead he is. And it's like, historians can't quite figure out if he was not great, not like not quite good at being a general or pretty good at being a general. And it's like, what the fuck? Who gives a shit? He was like just out there murdering people that he didn't like, that he wanted out of this country. No, no, but you're missing the point. General Custer wasn't a uniquely evil person. He was just another shitty opportunistic cog in a massive machine. So to focus yeah. on him at all, I think, obfuscates the larger issue of, like, what it means and how this movie perpetuates that exact same dynamic of, like, oh, he's just another part of America and what a what a colorful character. And I think that's what drives, drives me crazy. And yeah. it's even more insulting that, A, they have him not be able to say Sacagawea, which sucks ass and is, like, insulting on so many levels. Because, like Roosevelt, he specifically was part of the persecution of Native people. Yes. So to have all those bits is like – it's not just insensitive. It's like weirdly – like, again, I'll go back to it. Perverse. It's it, There seems like a weird glee in letting these people who specifically hated Native Americans do these shitty jokes. And, and Sacagawea was – she didn't even have a line until that moment of the film. Like she's in the opening scene and she doesn't say anything. They give a lot of time to cavemen babbling and racist versions of Attila the Hun speaking – and she's just silent as though she's behind her glass wall again. And then she she says one line about how like dumb Custer is, which is fine. But then she's basically not used again. Did you notice at the end when all the people were coming out of the plane? She doesn't even come out of the plane and yet she's magically back. They don't, they don't even give her the time to see her come out of the plane and go back to the museum. I don't even know why she was in the movie. So whack. And, and and as you move down the list of problems with this movie, and again, we'll get we'll fully explore Amelia Earhart in a minute. The moment where the Tuskegee Airmen thank Amelia Earhart for clearing the way for yeah. integration in the armed services. That a, was sick. The kind of like nightmarish liberal concoction of like attempted wokeness that is so genuinely bizarre and nonsensical. Like white women have a well-documented history in the racist oppression of black men. Like Emmett Till whistling at a white woman led to him being lynched as a teen. And that's one of the billion stories of the nightmarish way that whiteness more so than gender has been part of like what kept African-Americans in a miserable marginalized position for so long in this country, which of course persists until today. So like that incredibly cheap throwaway line that equates those two experiences was like, monstrous like genuinely bad yeah it's it's the way as you said it's just like on the unintentional like they think they're being really cool and woke and nice to include that little moment but not only is it just like doesn't really make any sense but also it ends up with her being like all right boys just go and kill your like base and obviously no one's gonna die in this movie because it's a fucking dumb kids movie with no stakes but they're like she just uses them as human bodies to get in the way of the people with spears and guns trying to kill her Right. Oh, my God. You're dead right. And then also there's the, the fact that, again, knowing anything about American history, you know, when when Jesse Owens won big in Berlin in the Olympics in the 30s, Hitler met with him, which is crazy. And FDR didn't. OK, so like so and then so many black veterans came back. And I am anti-Hitler. So many black veterans came back from that conflict and so many others having served their country just to find the exact same limitations, the exact same brutal segregation, the exact same institutional violence. So just the flattening of history into these cute pastiches yeah. is actually dangerous and and morally and historically wrong. 
it's sad to think that people would show this to their kids and be like, oh, this is cute and fun. And this is it's not ultimately the problem with this this whole franchise so far is that it is attempting to show us the magic of history in the same way that a Texas public school is going to show you the magic of history in that they're not they're just going to show you all the nice moments that make you feel good and not talk about all the everything else that's terrible. And I think the ending of this movie culminates in that exact idea in that the as much as you might disagree or agree, the Natural History Museum is trying to change. It's trying to update and trying to maybe show you something new. And no Ben Stiller, who has learned so much in these two movies, is like, here are millions of dollars to stay exactly the same. I don't actually want to know anything about history. I don't actually want to have real relationships. This dude is a fucking piece of shit loser that doesn't have any friends, doesn't have any family, and he like just sort of like has friends with this dumb Owen Wilson doll. And that's what he wants. He doesn't want anything new. He likes that Amelia Earhart is a wax doll. Right, and the, the, the movie forces him to go back to this bullshit. They're like... Stop thinking about, like, your own goals and dreams and hopes. Go back to tending to these bizarre, immortal wax creatures who just, like, have shenanigans at night. And that's, like, your true – it's so strange. Like, the message it could not be weirder, you know? Especially, again, it's totally the opposite of the first movie, which leads me to something else that made me very upset. Okay, so this is a two-parter. Let's start with this. Not only at the Smithsonian – does every single thing in the general vicinity of the museum come to life? Every single picture and painting we are led to believe contains a pocket universe that you can slip into that is immersive, limitless, and populated with a seemingly infinite number of sentient creatures who are trapped forever in the worlds of these pictures, which as a plot device to bring up, you know, I feel like it's the Bobcat Goldthwait thing of it all. You know, if someone fucks a dog, it's not a throwaway joke. That's the entire premise of a Bobcat Goldthwait movie. If you can enter a painting or picture and have it be a limitless universe and that's like five minutes of the movie, you're like, what the fuck? That's like that's so much crazier than anything else happening. You know, like that's so wild. They touch on it at the end that apparently in this new version of 1946 or whatever, Joey Motorola makes the phone, the cell phone. So this is a whole new pocket universe where they get the cell phone years decades before they needed it and i don't know what he's going to do with it without the towers and the infrastructure and all the you know the networks but jody joey motorola he lives in that whatever that picture whoever fucking took that picture and oh boy they got cell phones there obviously it was v-day and in real life he would have been passed out on cheap gin by like 2 p.m. after like punching a Japanese person or something. And that leads me to my other thing about that. That infamous photo, which people often, you know, it's synonymous with we won the war and look at this romantic kiss. The story of that kiss is super fucked up. It's really under talked about and I'm happy to have a platform to talk about it. That sailor, George Mendoza, was with some, a different woman and just grabbed this this woman out of nowhere and forcibly kissed her against her will. Which Ben Stiller does. Right. He, so, he recreates that moment by, I fucking hate that thing where it's like, oh, someone's coming looking for us. Let's make out. It's like the cheapest way someone can make a movie where a guy just gets to kiss someone for no reason. And they, they it's, basically- It's fine in Mission Impossible because Tom Cruise can do no wrong. But go ahead. Okay. So wait, so far Tom Cruise can do no wrong- uh, 
Coogan can Bill do Hader. no wrong. Bill Hader can do no wrong. And uh, Amy Adams can do no wrong. I fundamentally like all of them and all of their appearances. Yes. Okay. But they did it a little bit of wrong, I think, by being in this movie. But maybe in the same way that Eugene Levy was in Bandcamp Presents, colon, Beta House. I don't Bandcamp know. Bandcamp Presents, colon, Beta House. That's good. That's a shirt. <laughs> Did do you think he did wrong by being in uh, Bandcamp presents Colin Beta House? No, look, it's a direct to video. Make your money. Do you he think he probably spent roughly like half an hour shooting that movie? Do you so think good for uh, him. Eugene Levy did wrong being in Night at the Museum Two: Colin Smithsonian Battle as a little Albert Einstein bobblehead? That was him. That's Eugene Levy. Oh wow, that was lost on me. Yeah, you again, you didn't do a great. Talk I about mean, the just the, again, the flattening out of everything in this movie. Even the, these incredible character actors are just like crushed by yes. the weight of the stupid so, movie. That's what I like. We've already talked about a little bit with like uh, Owen Wilson and Coogan. Like they were the, the stakes are so fucking low, but in a nice way in the first one that like it allows for, you know, Ricky Gervais, Steve Coogan, all these people to just sort of like do their thing. This movie had so much dumped on them while keeping the stakes low, but just like action and bullshit happening all the time that all these like funny people didn't really actually get a chance to do very much. Like, why would you even bother hiring Eugene Levy to just be a little fucking doll that doesn't sound like Eugene Levy or all he does is recite pie? That's like literally... And the Russian, the, the, the Russian, the Egyptian tablet mystery makes no fucking sense at all. It's like I a was fucking Da Vinci Code shit where like the answer is built... so ludicrous. The answer would not exist. The, that question doesn't make any sense. The answer only right. means something thousands of years can, later can you honestly explain to me how pi would have entered into that at all i thought they had to go into the tomb to find something because i was like oh literally the secrets in the pharaoh's tomb so i was like oh that makes sense they got to go into the tomb and there's like some sort of answer or code written in there and pi that has nothing sense. to do with triangles right pi is a then circle all of a sudden they're thing, like guys? the center of a literal pyramid like it's like it's a kind of circular thinking that's so odd but look we got to talk about amelia Earhart. we do amelia Earhart lived a challenging, difficult life. Her parents divorced. She was a pioneer for women in a field that was like bitterly against them. She had to work her fucking ass off to be a pilot. And in this movie, one, I looked up some videos of her talking. Most people don't know that the Middle Atlantic accent, like the Cary Grant accent, is made up. It's not real. No one ever talked like that. Now, while Amelia Earhart in old footage of her has like a sort of, you know, era-specific intonation... She sort of talks a bit like this. And yes, that and that. In this movie, the whole like, Jimmy Jam Jum Jum, fun's the game, hip's the name. Like, what? it's like very schizophrenic. And then the fact that she, as a woman, she has to be romantically attracted to the lead above any other thing. Ugh. Fucking sucks. And then she didn't go to Micronesia. She says, like, I went to my, she never went to Micronesia. She didn't, like, do everything. Not everyone did everything. Yes, this is why, like... She if, did plenty. If you want to make a movie about the magic of history, it's got to be historical. You can't have fake shit happen just because you want... Ugh, I hate it. Well, the like, idea that, like, she did all that work just to have fun flying because it's fun, like... It's just like it's nihilistic. Her life was one of great struggle and hardship. And she probably worked really hard because she felt a certain way flying that she could never feel on Earth given the things that she had to contend with. And to take a, a, a really fascinating and dark story and to, to plunge it to these you know saccharine depths is just so frustrating. Yeah. I, and like in the same way that they like did that, like these directors are like, look how cool this like 
yeah, man, Obama rules and 2009's awesome. I love the scene where she's flying out of the Smithsonian and one of the guys is like, hey, you got a vagina. You can't fly that thing. And then the other guy's like, wow, she's so cool. He's like, damn, that's a woke girl boss. And that's the T, sis. Um, those two people are, of course, Thomas Lennon and Robert uh, Benjamin Grant, who wrote the movie. There's that shot of them holding the astronaut ice cream being like, my God, that woman's the best pilot I've ever seen, which no one ever said. She just was a pioneering – like the point is that people can be impressive for the real things they did without this weird, breathless, inaccurate slobbering that just makes no fucking sense. Yeah. It's uh – it, it the pandering and just bullshit. I mean, it was also just like an ad for the Smithsonian. I think it's like, do you like it when the kid was the kid in the chair and he's just like looking at the Microsoft Earth map of the Smithsonian? Yeah, a, like, a, a it's useless the, it's the biggest child. museum in the world. A useless Dad, child. It's so fucking cool. They don't even talk about. It. I was hoping that there'd be a scene where because he loses his cell phone in the picture, the grimy, awful picture, and I was thinking that would be a plot point. Where they'd be like, we couldn't get in touch with you for a whole night. What happened? Or something. But no, just a plot point to have Joey Motorola show up at the end. Like, dude, do you even see the kid? Yeah, that's right. He's chilling at the museum at night. Yeah, but that's it. There's no, that's what I'm saying. Just right. like with the holographic Teddy Roosevelt, which is completely evaporated the second it's introduced, the kid's just like, gee, this is fun. <laughs> like, dad's back to the, the museum. Like, that's just it? Like, there's, I don't know. Like, it feels like they skipped over a more fitting chapter, which would be Larry realizes it's, it's his time to leave. And we watch him leave the museum, pass the baton, and then, like, help that person. Like, th- there could have been th- – th- they just skipped a whole chapter that would have sort of made sense. And instead, it's the classic, like, movie two, we go balls to the walls and, and just scrap anything that was vaguely charming about the first movie for the sake of going big. And, and think you know, speaking of balls – things they scrapped and going big they erased the thinker's penis they erased the cupid's penis some of the most famous hogs in history gone so this is what i'm saying this movie is not interested in history this movie is not interested in the magic of history they're making up shit about amelia Earhart. Earhart. they're removing dicks which is like the only reason why you go to the museum anyways you just see, see some fucking dick some fucking yeah some pit. classically accurately rendered historical dicks that's important and you know the thing that 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 the base of all of this is that once again, they've got a cool idea. What would it be like to run around an even bigger museum at night and manage to just lose any of that? It's so because quickly. it's too big. It, Josh, we, we got too fucking big. The museum, the biggest museum in the world is not the place for this movie because it's endless. Like they spent too little time on everything that they could do. There's just too much. Yeah. There's just too much. It's why as much as I don't really like Star Wars and I'm very sorry for talking about it, I understand why when you go to a planet, like there's only one town on the planet and that's it. Because if you actually went to a planet and sort of tried to figure out how to like navigate an entire like civilization, but then 20 of them, it's just too much. And like this, just like they got lost in all the shit they wanted to do so much fun could have been had. Well, you had mentioned the wars, and we did get a bit of a cameo in this one from uh, a certain helmeted fellow. That's true. A certain breathy guy. (laughs) A certain black-clad Skywalker. No, 
not Luke. No, I speak of one Anakin Skywalker, or as he's better known. Yes, I speak of Papa one Luke. Darth. Oh, sorry. Darth. Darth Vader. Yeah. What was the licensing on that? What was the licensing on that? Well, that was... Okay, that was so no, no, Disney this was bought a, yes. 20th Century Fox? Yes, so this was still so a Fox owned, joint. Okay. Well, this is pre-Disney buying 20th Century Fox. Or, yeah. Then how is, do they license Vader? Because this is a 20th Century Fox joint. So, okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Well, it definitely cheapened Star Wars, so I guess good for you. You found a way to get to beat, I love to beat it. Disney to the punch and ruin Star Wars a few years before the full ruining. So that's cool. <laughs> did you like the, did you like the little bit, bit of business that we've all been wanting to do is like talk shit about Darth Vader and how dumb he looks and Hank really got to juice juicy up, sink those one teeth of, in. One of many extended bits of the most obvious possible joke that just you're like, Ugh. dear God. You're, and again, I, I think you, you hit on it about the, the, the Apatow impact of, uh, on comedy. Even yeah. by 2009 was so profound. It was huge. Like if you look at his like, past. We're going to let him riff. We're going to let Hank just riff right now. Yes. And that was like, it works when you have, I don't know why Apatow worked, but I, I do think that like the Pineapple Express, End of the World, like those movies, there is a little bit of magic even near the end of that era. And I think for 10 years, Apatow changed the way people made comedies. And this is just like old school style trying to figure out how to make a movie that's contemporary. And it does not work. This was the first movie shot in the Smithsonian, which is a real a real shame. Oh, is the only, right? Or no, have there been others? Does does uh I wish we could do the Nick Cage movies. I wish we could do the Nick Cage movies. I wish we could do the Nick Cage movies. Oh, I mean, if we could do uh, fucking National Treasure, we're oh, so close. I wish close. we could do them. This but... was so frustrating for exactly that reason, where I'm like, we're just inches away from the entire premise of fucking oh, National Treasure. Do... do you think we can make an exception and just do a two-parter for National I Treasure? I agree. I agree to that if we also do my favorite two-part movie series ever, Now You See Me, which is a similar, I would say a spiritual cousin's National Treasure in Josh. the exact same, yeah. I know that we're not in the same room, but I offer my hand to you as an agreement, a handshake of agreement, and that we will do both of those uh, while we're digitally shaking. That was fun. That was good. All right. So soon we'll be doing uh, Nicolas Cage's... Uh, so there was supposed to be a third one, and I think because of like John Carter and all these other things, like, wait, what was what was the story behind Nicolas Cage just like... They got scared about making a third one for some reason, and I'm so sad about that. It's a crying shame. It I'll, look, I'll look it up real quick. You, you do something. So I, I want to uh, point out another factor of this. Because they insist on having an Amelia Earhart romance with Larry, which, again, just leads up to just a very strange interaction with him and a, another Amy Adams later in the movie. That's another watery, weird joke. He, there's that part where Amelia's like, I know we can't be in love, but... Yeah, but why? And I'm like, man, you're going to make him explain that your vagina is made of wax? Yeah. Like, you're going to actually have him spell out why that's not a pot? Like, they're not going to, you're never going to be able to physically consummate your love. You're, you're a wax. I was really hoping there'd be a scene. And maybe it wouldn't have worked now. Maybe it wouldn't work then. But, you know, he's like, he's trying to explain it to her. He's like, you're a wax lady. You're a wax lady. But I can't say it. And she's like, shush, 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 Ben. Shush, 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 Larry. I know I am made of wax, and during sun hours, I will become unwax. I just wish it just like hard cut to him, his dick stuck in wax. That would be just going amazing. Help! 
And then he just has to like, maybe there'd be a whole 20 minute sequence where he's just like walking around fully dressed, but it has like a, a wax figure stuck to his dick. I, don't I mean, know. in the in know. an American Pie crossover, and oh. if Jim, if freaking Jim was doing this, you know, he'd get his dick stuck in Wax Amelia Earhart. It'd be so good for sure. Mm. Um, I think it's because they never figured out how to get National Treasure into their theme parks. Wow, that was a long walk for a delightful conclusion. Um, Ed Helms was in this. Uh, Mindy Kaling is in this. Just people thrown, like, like the Irish during the Civil War, just hurled into the line of gunfire just to be shot down by a fucking pointless undertaking. Uh, I, I think boy. maybe the only person that came out better was Ricky Gervais. Yes, I guess because there was less pressure on him to play the blustering, pontificating bad guy. He was sort of just weirdly vulnerable in this. Yeah, and he sort of lost the, like, weird... Like, he had that running bit where he just, like, never finished sentences, and it was, like, a very 2006-style thing that tried to make people laugh, and that was totally gone, and it was much more just, like, a Ricky Gervais doing him. And he's best when he's just playing himself, and I like that he sort of likes Ben Stiller, but can't admit to it. So that just seemed very much like an office sort of thing where he just, like, doesn't know how to say the thing he wants to say. And I don't know, it really worked for me. Well, let's let's get to the grand finale here. I, I am asking when will it end. This feels like if it goes any bigger, we're really like, what's left at this point? This this was a pretty hollow undertaking. I, I think this movie also feels like the role of Larry, the, the central character that leads us through this has become so malleable and affectless that we're left with this sort of generic white brown haired man just doing stuff like I don't give a shit the first movie this emotional stakes for Larry kind of are what make it a charming movie where we're like oh he's a father he's got dreams and this it's like well now he's like a successful entrepreneur and women you know Amy Adams is hurling herself at him and everyone likes him and he just like is now it just I, I feel like where does it go from here? What could the stakes possibly be? They've they've gone so flat that I, I'm just I have no more questions about this world. Yeah, I, I mean it's also another Levy joint, and so far he's been pretty. Who gives a shit? Like I don't really, like unremarkable. Like what? Yeah. How would you describe his directing style? Like yeah, unre- unremarkable is good. Yeah, it's just it's it's bad. The the writing's been bad the whole way through. I'm also asking when will it end? I don't. Karen, especially the only thing I know about the third one, because I got it out of the library and I have the Blu-ray right across the room from me. It's called Secret of the Tomb. I liked that the first one set up, maybe this was unintentional, but I liked that Ram, Rami was, uh, you thought he might be the villain because he was like contained and never got out. He was trying to get out. And he turns out to be just a dancing freak and lovely gentleman. And I hated that, like, now they're back to, like, this one was about an Egyptian god fucking, like, mummy guy. And it's called The Secret of the Tomb. We're like, are we just going to be stuck in, like, Egypt as the bad place over and over again? Well, I'm and also, it's, like, it's like the shit. kind of thing where, where these series end up looking, like, staring at their feet. Where it's like, we're, we don't need more pharaoh shit. We've covered nice. pharaoh shit. How are you possibly going back to the pharaoh shit well again? I don't want it. I want something fresh. Want something new, and I don't think Night at the Museum colon Secret of the Tomb is going to give it for me. Yeah, Teddy's back. He's second build. He's on the fucking cover of the Blu-ray. It's just like, ugh, well, it's, and also the the existential peril of the museum has been that's been a factor in both of the first two movies. So I'm looking. The tagline for the third movie is One Final Night to Save the Day. 
And it's like, That's we've bad. already seen the museum go through these existential threats. What I, I'm not, I'm at a loss as to what they think we're going to be getting out of this. So I don't know. This sucks. The first one, it was about a man that was lost and he sort of used this connection to history and being at the museum to like maybe get a connection to his son who he's losing track of where he thinks he still wants to be a hockey player, but he doesn't really anymore. And he like, they come together. And this is about a guy that is doing well that has to regress to go back to liking his son again. It just didn't make any sense. And I don't know what they're going to do. It's either going to not be about that anymore. So it's just probably going to be about all this crazy shit coming to life. And that's it. Or they're going to find some new dumb thing where Ben Stiller has to love his son again. And I don't well, care. And then, what's even more disturbing is that this has been one of the most consistent creative teams on any franchise we've ever done. These are three movies in a row with a really stable set of actors, and it sucks. So, like, that's really bad. This isn't the kind of thing where, I mean, usually even if there's installments in a long-running franchise that we found terrible, there's an excitement to, like, okay, they've passed the ball off. Someone else is going to put their stink all over this thing. Yeah. And that can be, like, kind of a redemptive quality. In this, where it's the same producers, same director, same writers, just again and again and again. It it feels relentless. Okay, let's do MVPs. Who's your pick, Charles? I got to give it to to Hill. Yeah. He was... That scene, while it was, I mean, completely undercut later in the movie by him doing the exact same bit where he was supposed to not touch the the hourglass filled with a little Jedediah. But, like, the, it was a it was a new freshness. Jonah Hill fucking rules. He was really great. I'm, I'm going to give it to Brunden or whatever. How would you pronounce it? Brunden? Brunden. Brunden. That, was, that was a good bit. And again, just like another another bit thrown into the void where it's like, why why even trot out a good bit in this fucking movie? I'm going to give it to Amy Adams because I think she had a really rough go being sexually objectified as a historical dead woman. And I genuinely think she manages to bring a certain weird intensity to all of her performances. And given how thankless this role is, I want to acknowledge that I, I think she managed to show what she's good at despite a, a significant structural challenge that is the script and movie being dog ass. Do you really, I, th- I think you're really, you were probably thinking of a few different people, but when she comes back at the end at nameless woman who looks like Amelia Earhart, did you just stand up and just, just breathe in just, Oh wow. This is a great movie where this guy who's can't, who wants to fall in love with Amelia Earhart, but can't immediately on the opening night, of his new museum that's just like how it used to be finally gets to fuck a woman who looks sort of like a woman that he doesn't ever get to know. Really great shit. This movie would be sick if it was like, uh, if the softy brothers adapted it to just some guy smoking ketamine in a museum, you know, yes, like I mean, that, that one part of a good time, just like drawn out. Like if we hung out with uh captain Phillips guy in the fucking haunted house more, after he got dosed so uh, brutally. Yeah. Uh, it's like that's that would be a cool-ass movie. Like some piece of shit on ketamine just stumbles around a museum freaking out because paintings are talking to him. That shit would be amazing. Oh, that reminds me. Charles, I thought of the best crossover in movie history. What's this? Watching this movie. Yeah. Okay. Who from an, another series we did recently okay. is fixated on museums? He's a, 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 a real character. He just loves museums. And a lot of his big statements as a character are based around art. Huh. Wow. This is a hard question. We did I'll give re- you a hint. Yeah, let me get a hint. Some know him as the clown prince of crime. Others as a man who just wants to watch the world burn. 
Oh, yes. He what does. if freaking Joker Man tries to do a museum heist and only Larry and his little chums can stop a raving psychotic lunatic? This is what we need. We need uh, – that's why the first one was okay because it turns out the outside, you know, the like the actual – uh, conflict doesn't come from within the museum world. It comes from without, and Larry teams up with the people, the fake people, to try to, like, battle off the outside world. And this one is, like, it's so, in, like, insular. It doesn't make any sense. And you're right. Maybe the third one will realize that Dick Van Dyke fucking was necessary. We needed a Dick Van Dyke to really make this thing work. And who knows? Maybe I've already said I'm asking, but, hey, that could save the series. We could have a good final. Here's my one thing. Uh, bring back Nicholson. That's the only way I'll do it. And uh, lastly, we uh, incorrectly stated that uh, Dick Van Dyke is dead. And a listener reached out to me and said, Dick Van Dyke is not dead. So what? Um, my apologies to Dick Van Dyke, who is alive. How is he and not dead? He's like 100. He's, 90, he's 94. He's not 100. Uh, but we were wrong, and I want to apologize to Richard Wayne Van Dyke, uh, born December 13th, 1925, close to Christmas. I wonder if that was hard. In West Plains, Missouri, uh, we apologize. Hang on our faces. Whoa, 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 You're not whoa, whoa, dead. Whoa, 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 whoa. You apologize. You haven't even checked in with me. Oh, my God. Charles, come on. I'm not going to apologize. I mean, I... We I, said he was dead. Look, I... I I admit that I'm wrong, and I probably should do more research before I just make statements that I think are facts. But I don't, fuck, I don't care. He's rich, whatever. He's okay. old. Dick, I'm sorry about Charles. Uh, you're not dead. That's great. You're a treasure. Charles, let's wrap up the episode. Um, what is one? Uh, what is a, a historical uh, wax mannequin you would do sex with? Wax man? Okay, from from the movie or just any? No, like you're strong through museum, they come to life and they're hitting on you and you're like, I guess I would. Okay, so like in the same way that just they, I'm, I'm walking through the museum, it's lively mm-hmm. and one of them just wants to fuck me for no reason and I'm just like, yeah, sure. Yeah, who, and, and who's your, who'd you go with? Well, I would have normally said the thinker, but penis gone. So I'm not really all that interested in just like, well, I mean, I guess that brings another- Essentially fraudage, really. You'd be sort of just doing yeah, a lot of friction. I can do that at home. I wonder if- do you think the wax part, like, are there, I mean, can I even do it? Do I have to make the hole before, like, do I have to wait for them to Let's go back to you, inanimate if you and then didn't drill have to the... Worry about, if you didn't have to worry about these kind of uh, basic dynamics. Okay. Just on personality alone. Going whale. Going whale. Okay. Right in the blowhole, I bet. Yeah. You're right in the fucking blowhole. Yeah. And for me, it would be uh, Charlemagne because he uh, created a robust postal system in the 15th century. And that's the show next week, Night at the Museum, colon, The Last Museum. Scabadoo, 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 doo, boo. It's the Charles and Josh show. I have some, um, I have some good stuff for the uh, Sandler episode. I'm excited to talk oh, about that. Great. Too. Check, check, check. Well, that's working. All right. Just, cool. Such. Is it working? You should see this. It's awful setup I have. How bad is it? It's. 
I mean, here, I'll show you. Like, I, for some reason, my microphone does not work on my main computer, so I have to have this. How do I even... So I have that on the floor, which is connected to this mic, but then I have this, my other computer, to do everything else. Your shit's all fucked up. Yeah, it's all fucked up. I'm trying to get it better. 